We're turning back to Zechariah chapter 5 that was read just a little moment ago and we're going to bow together in prayer. We need the Lord's help. We are glad to see you here in the meeting or if you're logged in online. Again, we appreciate that very much and we look to the Lord to draw near and speak to us afresh. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee this evening seeking Thy help, desiring that the One who is the King of Kings will draw near to us. O Lord, we thank Thee that He is coming back again. He's coming back in power and great glory. He came in condescension, humiliation the first time. He was rejected of His own, crucified. We thank thee that in being crucified he worked out our redemption. And tonight there is that sacrifice that has been made for sin. A once for all sacrifice never needs to be repeated. It's all sufficient. And we praise thee that that sacrifice still avails for sin this very hour. The blood has not, lost, has not lost any of its ancient power. And we plead the victory in the merit of that shed blood. We pray now, Lord, that thou will draw nigh to us as we come around thy word and as we think of his coming again and what thy word has to say. Lord, we acknowledge thy word has much to say. And as we were thinking in the afternoon time, Lord, we would pray for insight. We would pray that we might have a greater understanding of these things. Help us to read them and to study them out. Lord, help us to be diligent in that regard that we do not just pass over these things and they don't mean much to us and never remain for long with us. But Lord, give us a searching heart, a spirit that comes and seeks the Lord for help to teach us and to instruct us in these things. We believe, Lord, thou indeed will teach us. And we pray that this evening that will be our portion. So for this time, close us in with thyself, whether here in the meeting itself or those that would be watching in online. We thank the Lord for this ministry as well, and we pray thou will prosper this means of sending out thy word. Those, Lord, as well who may listen at a later time, we ask that again thou will bless thy word, O Lord. And we pray that much will be accomplished in, in many a heart. We look to thee. Tarry with us now, we pray for these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we come to this fifth chapter of Zechariah, we certainly come to uh, a vision that changes tone from those that have gone before. We were thinking of the last of those there this afternoon in chapter 4 with the candlestick and then working your way on back through those other visions that are found in these opening chapters. But when we come to what we have in chapter 5 with the flying roll and also with the ephah, there is a considerable change of tone. From dwelling upon that ornate candlestick supplied by that wonderful reservoir of oil tapped from those two olive trees, we come to consider a curse that is going out upon the whole land, upon the whole earth. 
We turn from that which represents the presence of God in its fullness when we think about the oil being poured out, coming out of those two olive trees and and into the people of God. We turn from, from thinking about that to that which represents wickedness. And what chapter 5 of Zechariah has to say about that particular matter. Now in verse 3 you read about a curse. And it is in connection with this flying rule. And then the second part of the chapter beginning there at verse 5. You read about the ephah. And in the midst of the ephah there is this description of wickedness that is to be found. And it's the, the obvious question as we work our way through the book of Zechariah and come to this fifth chapter is to wonder, well, what is the connection between what we have here in chapter 5 with those good and comfortable words which have gone before? Why has the tone changed so much? Why have we moved away from that which is encouraging in many ways and comforting to the people of God to now think about a curse and to think about wickedness? What's the connecting thought? Well, I I take it that in these latter visions of this first part of the book of Zechariah, that the Lord is indicating here that there are some things that have to come to pass before he will return in power and in great glory. And those things are dark by nature. The word of God elsewhere indicates that to us as well. If I can just quote one verse to you over in the New Testament, in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19, where it says, We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. The coming of the Saviour the second time is likened to the dawn of a new day. And that immediately causes us to think about the darkness of the night that just goes before. And sometimes it's said that uh, it's always darkest before the dawn. Well, that's going to be very true spiritually speaking when we think about the state of the nations and the state of the world just prior to the coming of the Lord. It is going to be a dark place. There are some dark things that are going to happen prior to the coming of the Lord. And the Lord is indicating here in these visions to Zechariah and through Zechariah to the the people of his day that before these wonderful things that he has already been explaining in the former chapters before those wonderful things comforting things as they are described there in chapter 1 and verse um, 13 before they come to pass there are these dark things that have to happen as well and that's what we're coming this evening to think about a curse and wickedness. And I trust that as we do so, the Lord will give us insight into his word and, and may the word of God be opened up to our hearts by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first four verses of chapter 5 deal with this time of the curse. And again, I, I think this is suggested, this uh, change of events is, is suggested to us in the opening verse of chapter 5 because we're told uh, with regards to Zechariah, Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold a flying rule. So as he was occupied in looking at the candlestick that we were looking at in the previous chapter this afternoon, the, this uh, prophet, Zechariah, is caused to turn and to lift up his eyes and see something foreboding. This flying roll. 
as the word flying suggests, it's moving. There's something that's catching his attention here. It's very dramatic that as he observes, as he says, I turned away from something that he was pondering that was of great encouragement to him when you think about the Holy Spirit being poured out in his fullness. Now we turn to some more foreboding things. And he looks and behold a flying roll. And if we take that same um, mode of looking at these visions as we were doing this afternoon, notice what Zechariah sees and then consider how the explanation of those things are given to him. Well, what did he see? He tells us here he sees a flying roll. And there are dimensions that are given to it in verse uh, 2. Because the question is asked again of the of Zechariah, what seest thou? And he repeats it for a second time. I see, I see a flying roll, but there are particular dimensions that are given to it. It's 20 cubits in length and the breadth thereof are 10 cubits. So he, he is made to, to consider this. And from what we learn there in the next verse as well, verse 3, that this roll is, is rolled out, it's opened up. It's a scroll actually, is the idea that is here before us. The, the old ancient way of, of having the scriptures long before there were ever in book form. And even the, the Jews still in their synagogues have them in, in a scroll that they will scroll, open up the scroll and find the place. Well, that's the type of p- uh, picture that is before us. And this scroll is, is opened up because it tells us in verse 3 that Zechariah is able to read what's on either side of it. Because it tells us something that's on this side and then something that's on the other side. So the scroll is rolled open so that he can read what's on either side of it. It's not just something that's rolled together. So there's a message that is on it. A message to be conveyed to those of Zechariah's day, but on down through time as well, because this is part of the inspired word. So there is a message here on either side of this that Zechariah is going to be made to understand and come to see in a particular way. And there's an explanation that begins there in verse 3. Then said he unto me, And again, there is that point of application to us all just at this particular moment, that it is the Lord's application of his truth that we need to find out. We can come to portions and we can read a portion and we can see particular things and different personalities and different thought processes can see maybe uh, different things. But the most important thing is to understand, well, what is it that the Lord would have me to see? What is it that the Lord is actually teaching There's many applications, as we know, but there's only one interpretation. And sometimes people mix up the two, where they put their own application of something in for an interpretation, and yet that is not the case. What is it that the Lord is teaching here? Well, it's the Lord here that's teaching through this um, angel that is teaching Zachariah here at this particular time. And we're told in verse 3, this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. This is the curse. That word curse is associated with those curses that are mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy in connection with the the law of God. And if, if you go over, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and let's just underscore a little here and and make the connection between this word that appears in in Zechariah, well, where does it come from and where, how is it used? 
in other places in the scriptures. And if we go back to the book of, Deuteron- uh, book of Deuteronomy, and if we begin in the word of God there, you'll find these various places where this is uh, particularly spoken about. And it speaks about places where the, the curse appears. And there's a number of places where that word appears. In five, five, five places where it appears. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, you'll find um, cursed be. Uh, let's take some verses here, beginning at uh, verse 15. And it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments which his, and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And you can begin to go down through that next portion, and you will find there a number of places where the word curse appears, as it's found here in uh, the Word of God. So there's a history to this. This is not just the first time where this idea of a curse appears, uh, as you have it in in Zechariah, but we can go back into Old Testament times and we can begin to realize, well, it's mentioned before, and it's to do with the breaking of God's law. It's to do with the turning away from the Lord. There's a curse that comes upon that people and upon the land as well in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and other places also. So there's a curse that's going to come upon those who forsake the Lord and those who turn away from the Lord. There's a curse going to come upon the land of Israel as well. It's described there in in great length. We're not going to specifically pursue that tonight, but... It's mentioned before. It's not something that, that as we come to Zechariah here, that this is oh, the one and only time or the first time that this is introduced to us. And then, well, how would we understand what it is? We can go back and find the places where it has appeared before. The same thought has appeared. The same word has appeared in certain places. And it's connected with disobedience to the Lord, forsaking the Lord, turning away from his law and his word. And there's going to be a curse that comes upon people and upon nation. That's certainly true of Israel. It's true of any nation that turns away from the Lord. Our own nation is is no better and certainly ought to take heed and take warning from the pattern that is given to us in the word of God that when a nation forgets the Lord, there's a consequence that will come upon that nation. And we're reaping that. We've already begun to reap that harvest. And it's not a pleasant harvest at all. And more and more people are complaining about the times we live in. Well, this is the harvest. This is the seeds that they have sown. And they've sown them for for years and even decades. Those seeds have been sown of turning away from the the word of God. And now the harvest is coming home. And they're, they're complaining about the times we live in, the spirit of the age, the attitude of, of people and and rising crime and, and uh, just... The lack of manners in society. Well, it's the harvest of departure from God. And with it there comes an ever-increasing tide of sin and wickedness and evil and even things that a generation or two ago would never have been imagined would be entertained. It's being entertained today by society at large. There's a harvest to pay. And that's a lesson that is worth Remembering, So there is a connection here with, with this curse that we have in uh, Zechariah chapter 5. But there's also something here about the standard 
by which uh, society and the actions and conduct of men are going to be measured. Because I think that's the significance of the measurements that are given to us in verse 2. They have to have some significance, the 20 cubits and 10 cubits. Because if the Lord puts details into his word, it's not just superfluous, it's not there to fill out a record. There has to be some reason, and then you start to say, well, well, what's the reason? Where does this appear before in the scripture? If we follow that important principle of letting scripture interpret scripture, well, where do we find something like this before? There's only two other places in the Old Testament where you will read about 20 cubits and 10 cubits. One of them is the dimensions of the holy place. Not the holiest of all, but the holy place where the candlestick was and the altar of incense was and the table of showbread was. If you work that out, that was 20 cubits by 10. The whole of the tabernacle was 30 cubits by 10. The holiest of all was 10 cubits by 10 cubits. But that first part before the veil was 20 cubits by 10 cubits. So that's one of the places in the word of God where you read about these dimensions. The only other place that I can come up with where those uh, dimensions are found as well is again in reference to the house of God, but this time in reference to Solomon's temple, 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 3. And in that verse you say, uh, you read, The porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of their house, and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. So there's another place where you read about the 20 cubits and the 10 cubits. So there's only two places in all the word of God that you come upon the 20 cubits and 10 cubits. And it has to do with the house of God at both times. Once the tabernacle and the other time Solomon's temple. And what is the suggestion here? Well here's the standard that's going to be measured. Used to measure. Men's actions. It's not going to be a standard that man has devised. Man's standard is far off from God's standard. And man counts sin. Man counts as righteous what God counts as sin. We know that there's coming that day when um, light will be taken for darkness and darkness will be taken for light. And we live in such times as those. So it's not going to be an earthly standard. It's not going to be a man-made standard. That's going to be the standard of judgment. What's going to determine where this curse will fall and who it will affect? It's God's old standard. It's God's old standard. He hasn't removed that standard at all. And the standard of justice is going to be in keeping with his holiness. That was manifested both in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple. God is a holy God and he has a standard. There will be no minimizing sin, no overlooking sin, no excusing sin. No playing down of sin, no changing of sin. Sin will be what God defines it to be and what God has defined it to be. It's going to be an old standard. It's going to be an old standard. So when you come to Zechariah and you read here and you stop at verse 2 and you say, well, what's the significance of these dimensions? And you start to search those out. Well, where are they found in scripture? We're going to be taken to God's house and we're going to think about God's standard. And that's going to be the standard that's going to be used to judge where this curse will fall or not. We're told something here about the cause of this curse as well. In verse 3, this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off, 
as on this side according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. And then if you read the beginning of verse 4, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. So there's a, a further little explanation of what's the cause of this curse. Well, what brings it in the first place? Well, it's a breaking of God's law. And it would seem here that what is being referenced as well is both tables of the law. Because the sins that are mentioned here are sins, one from either table of the law. The swearing falsely by the Lord's name is a breaking of the third commandment. I shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So, while verse 3 just uh, gives us the, the shorter definition of that, that it's going to be that he that sweareth, when we go into verse 4, we discover that it's he that sweareth falsely by the Lord's name. They're taking the Lord's name upon themselves, and they're doing it in a false way. And that's going to bring a judgment upon them. So that's, that's sins of the first uh, table of the law. And then, him that stealeth is the other sin that is particularly mentioned here in verse 3. And as we readily know, that's a sin out of the second table of the law. So it would seem here that the Lord is pointing to his law, his ancient law, this is going to be the standard, and he's highlighting the fact that on both tables of the law, there's a breaking of his laws. And he's going to bring judgment upon men and women. There's a curse that's going to go across the face of the whole earth as it is described here. And it's going to be cause of sin. God will never justify sin no matter what man does. And we live in a day as we know when things are being redefined and changed. And that old standard that God has given us in his word is being altered. At least man thinks they can alter it and change it. And they can dismiss it and set it aside and remove it entirely and give no credence to God's law at all. But what they're going to discover is that law is going to be the standard by which men and women are judged. That's going to be the standard of judgment. And there will be those who will be found guilty. There's one writer that I noticed makes the suggestion that the one side of the rule contained judgments of God against the transgressors of that first summary of the law, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And that the other side of the flying rule or the flying scroll brings that condemnation upon those who transgress that other command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's the same thought. Two tables of the law. Sins one sin taken out of each table of the law. Those that apply to the Lord and our duty toward God and then our duty to our fellow man. There's a sin taken out of each one of these categories. And here they are on either side of this flying roll. And it's going out across the face of the whole earth. And this is going to be the cause of the judgment. And wouldn't our day and age and the people that we live among do well to remember God's standard still remains. God's standard still remains. Sadly, there's a growing generation more and more that know nothing of the things of the Lord, know nothing of his word, know nothing of his law and what is required in it. Don't even know the summary of the law. 
and the Ten Commandments. Such is the ignorance of his word. But there is a judgment that is coming. There is a curse that is going to come across the face of the whole earth. And the Lord is showing Zechariah, Zechariah, this has to happen before those good things can come about. There is this dark, foreboding day when this curse is going to go out across the face of the earth. There's going to be judgment. The Lord is coming in judgment. I want you to notice something else here as well in verse 4. The, the intent that, is there, the, that there is in this curse. Verse 4 says, I, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts. This is, this is of the Lord, it's his doing. And then he says, not only will I bring it forth, but the next clause there is, it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house. Oh, this is going to be prolonged. This is going to to have a degree of seriousness to it. This is not something that, that is just going to be fleeting. And then the last clause there to notice in verse 4 as well is, It shall remain. And the, and the thought that is in that word remain there is, or that it will be, be consumed or will be brought to a finish. You see, the Lord, the Lord has a purpose here in this. This is going to be God dealing with sin. And even to the extent where he, he, he will purge the Holy Land. We've already thought about some of those verses uh, this afternoon, chapter 2, verse 12, where it speaks about a Holy Land. And how is that going to come about? Well, the Lord's going to purge sin out of that land. Like any land that is marred and sin and stained by sin and its people are... Those who have turned away from the Lord and have forgotten him. But the Lord is going to do a purging work, we are told. And there's going to be a judgment that's going to come. And it will take away certain individuals. But it has an intent in view. It's certainly going to be a judgment. And it's going to come forth. And it's going to enter into the house of those who have committed sin. It's going to remain there, it says. But it'll consume. It'll come to an end. Well, not only will it bring to an end a sinner... For who can, who can resist the Lord? As Job asked that question, who can contend with God and prosper? No, not one. Not a single soul can contend with God. That's why every mouth will be stopped, as the scripture tells us on that day when the Lord comes to judge. Well, there's many as an individual in their arrogance think that somehow they will argue with God or debate with God. Or point out some flaw in what God has done. They'll not, they'll not speak a word, the Bible says. Every mouth will be stopped, it says. Such will be the overawing sense of his holiness. There will not be a, a, a tongue that will speak. Not a tongue. And the Lord is going to, to do a purging work that brings it to an end. The end of the sinner, yes, who has committed sin, but also the end of sin itself. And that he's going to purge the land. And how, how can they ever get to that place? And some of those verses that we were looking at, maybe we should just go back there to chapter 2 and verse 12. Um, it says, The Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again. So it's going to be a holy land. Chapter 8 and verse 3 was another 
uh, verse we mentioned this afternoon as well, where it says, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So how are these things going to come to pass? How is it going to be a holy land? How is it going to be a city of truth? It can only be so when the Lord does a purging work and he sends a curse or a judgment out upon men and women who have committed sin. And by this means, he's going to purge that land and purge that people. And it will bring to an end a sinner. Many's a sinner. But it's going to bring to an end sin as well, to a certain degree. And it's going to become a holy land. You read there about the domain of it as well. It goes across the face of the earth. Is what the, the, the scripture tells us in verse 3. And sometimes the, the word earth is in reference to the land of Israel itself. And that may well be the, the reference here. Because as we make our way on down the chapter towards the end of this chapter, there's a contrast there with the land of Shinar. There's the land of Shinar. So there's a land that the curse goes out over. And then there's another land that is mentioned there as well in the latter part of the chapter, the land of Shinar. So it may be that this is in reference to the land of Israel because it speaks about those who have sworn falsely by his name. And that would suggest it has to be his ancient people. It has to be a people who know his name and who take his name upon them. That it's they who have sworn falsely. The Lord just doesn't say they have sworn falsely. But he says they have sworn falsely by my name. So there are people who take the Lord's name upon themselves. It seems is the people who are in view here in Zechariah chapter 5. So there's going to be a purging of that land, a purging of that people. And these are dark times the Lord is showing to Zechariah. But the Lord is saying, Zechariah, this has to come to pass before those better times come. Those good times that are indicated in the earlier visions that are found in this particular portion. The flying roll suggests the swiftness of this curse as well. It's flying, it's moving at pace. The Lord will do things suddenly. And aren't we told that in scripture he will suddenly come to his temple. He's coming suddenly. He will do things quickly. I take it that. For example some of those records that you have in the history of of Israel. Where the Lord did great things. For example, in the days of Hezekiah, where there was a great reformation and a turning to the Lord. And if you want to turn up the reference, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And you have there in that chapter some of the details about what was done in Israel in the reign of Hezekiah. But if you come right down to the very end of the chapter, here's what you read. Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. The thing was done suddenly. God worked suddenly in the days of Hezekiah. It didn't take a long time. When the Lord began to work, things happened at a pace. And 
I think that's suggested here as well with the thought of the flying roll in in Zechariah 5. I think of some other verses as well that we possibly could turn up to if we had time that suggests the same thing. That when God begins to do something, he does it suddenly. And when God begins to work and he begins to purge, and he begins to bring this judgment or this curse upon the land and upon a people, he's going to do it suddenly. He's going to do it quickly. But it's coming. There's one thing for sure. There's a day, a dark day that is coming. When those who withstand the Lord and who have sinned against him and have not repented are going to meet a God coming in judgment. And what an awful day that will be. Is it any wonder the New Testament tells us it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And there will be those that will do just that. Those who have rejected his mercy and rejected his son. So there's a curse that goes out upon the land in order to purge it. And then if we come on now secondly to the the next part, second half of this chapter beginning there at verse 5. There's something else that is dark and foreboding. There's this time of wickedness that is coming. And I use that term because it appears here in this this portion of, of scripture. And we're told in verse 8... This is wickedness. So there's something here to do with wickedness that Zechariah is shown as well. So again, before Israel's going to be restored, before they come back to the fulfillment of these earlier part, the visions that are found in the opening chapters of Zechariah, here's something else that is going to have to happen. There's going to be a time of wickedness. And there's some details that are given to us in connection with that here in the second part of this chapter. And in verse 5, The prophet is directed again by the angel to lift up his eyes and to see what is going forth. So here's something on the move as well. We've noticed about the flying roll. It was on the move. And the thought there of swiftness, well, it may well be the case here again. Especially when we come down a little bit further and think about these um, two women like the wings of the stork. And they, they are lifted up from the earth, the, the lift up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. There's may, there may well be this, the thought of swiftness there and speed at which something comes to pass. But Zechariah is called to, to notice this again. Take, take note of this. Take note of, of what is going forth. And this time it has to do with a spirit of wickedness that will manifest itself. And it's finally going to be destroyed before Israel is restored. It's going to be finally destroyed before Israel is restored. That spirit of wickedness that we read of here can be equated with that spirit of lawlessness that we find, for example, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It speaks there about the wicked or the wicked one or the lawless one in Second Thessalonians 2 and 8. The Antichrist is going to be a lawless individual. There's going to be a spirit of lawlessness. It literally means there without law. Without law. There's going to be a spirit where there is no recognition for God's law. And if you take the two here together as they are in this particular chapter, we've thought about what's going to happen. There's a judgment coming upon a people who take no regard for God's law. And then we come now into the second part of the chapter and we find here that this spirit of wickedness is going to be manifested by that very attitude without law. And we we live in an age where that is growing more and more where people think, I'm a law unto myself. I can do as I please. 
Nobody tells me what to do is the attitude of today. It's I, me, me. And the idea is, well, I will do as I please. I will not be constrained or restricted or spoke, told what to do in any fashion. That's a growing spirit more and more among the people of this day. It is a spirit of lawlessness. What God says in his word, we know is going to come to pass exactly as he says. But I want you to notice something here about this uh, spirit of wickedness. It's going to be embedded in the bosom of a spirit of commerce. The ephah, as we know, is a dry measure used by merchants in weighing out their goods. You read about it, well, almost 30 times in the word of God, you read about the ephah. There's a place called ephah, but leave that aside. Just this, this particular ephah, the dry measure for goods. For example, in Exodus 16.36, it tells us there that a nomer is the tenth part of an ephah. So here is a dry measure for goods, and it's a symbol of commerce, a symbol of trade. And that is what has been used here. So there is connected here with this spirit of wickedness, the ephah that goes forth in verse 6 as well. It's moving, it's, it's suggested to us there in verse 6. Now it's true, Antichrist's kingdom will have a political dimension. We read about that in the chapters in Daniel. The political dimension that there will be the reforming of the ten kingdoms of the Roman earth. And they will come in, will be in existence as Antichrist comes to the fore. So there's going to be a political dimension to the kingdom of Antichrist. There's going to be a religious dimension to the kingdom of Antichrist. As we know, Revelation 17 is very obvious. Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, the cage of every unclean bird. There's going to be a religious dimension as well to the kingdom of Antichrist. But what is particularly highlighted here is this commercial aspect this commercial aspect and how within this spirit of commerce there is going to be this spirit of wickedness that's going to be concealed for a time and then it will eventually be brought to the fore and eventually brought to its place it says there in that verse 6 this is their resemblance through all the earth and it's the ephah that is the resemblance. Oh, the spirit of wickedness is here, as the explanation is given in verse 6. This is the, the, the woman in the midst of the ephah. This is wickedness, but the ephah is the part that is described here. This is their resemblance through all the earth. So there's going to be that which has all the resemblance of commerce and economic activity. It's going to be the driver, a considerable driver of the kingdom of Antichrist and bringing Antichrist to power and to prominence. This is their resemblance. And for many, oh many, many centuries now, as we know, Europe has been the commercial centre of the world. And even in recent times, more and more, there is that spirit of commerce. Everything is, is framed in that Context, commerce, trade, economic activity, anything that is discussed or decided or, or weighed up is, is weighed up in, in the balance of commerce. Will it make money? Will it make us richer? Will it do us good economically? 
That's, that's the language of, of today and those that are in authority. That, that's how they measure everything. It's not a matter of saying, is this right in God's eyes? Is this according to God's law? Is this according to his word? That's not the spirit that is in those who are in authority today. It's a totally different spirit. It's the spirit of commerce. Everything is being driven by trade, economic activity and economic advancement. And the ephah therefore is a very fitting symbol for the spirit of the age that's going to be present ere the kingdom of Antichrist is, is brought to the fore. And this spirit of wickedness is concealed in this ephah. As we read there in verse 7, Behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. There's this concealing. She wants to, she wants to, to break out. She wants to manifest her, herself, but her time is not yet. It's concealed for a time, and there's this talent of lead that is put upon the top of the ephah, so it's going to conceal the spirit that is there, the true spirit that is there. The outward resemblance through all the earth, his commerce and trade, but hidden under this all, there's going to be this spirit of wickedness, this woman that is in the ephah, hidden, hidden in the midst. You know, over the, over the centuries, this world has come to dread the scepter, and it has come to dread the sword, and it has come to dread the mitre. This world doesn't dread the ephah. It doesn't dread the ephah. It welcomes the ephah. It welcomes trade and commerce and economic activity because there is this thought, it's going to make us richer, it's going to make us better off. The more we have of this, the better. They haven't yet come to dread the ephah. Oh, they will one day, when it's too late, come to dread the ephah, but at present they don't. They'll, they'll dread, as I say, they'll, they'll dread the scepter, and they'll dread the sword, and they'll dread the mitre. But this world has not yet come to dread the ephah. And this is the semblance, this is the, the picture, this is the representation that is given to the world as it goes forth, as it develops. And all the time there is this spirit of wickedness, there is this woman in the midst of the ephah, with a lid kept on, a lid of lead. To conceal her and keep her there until the appointed time has come. We're going to turn over to Revelation chapter 18 in a, in a moment. But before we do that I want you to just follow on through here on the, on the picture that is given to us. Because there comes a time when this, this ephah is going to move it tells us. In verse 9, the prophet lifts up his eyes and looks and behold, here's something to take note of. There, come, there came two women. The wind was in their wings and they had the wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. And the question is asked, whether are they going to take it? Where is it going? And the answer is given in verse 11, to build it in house in the land of Shiner and establish it there. So this spirit is going to be developing, this uh, resemblance is going to be already there, this woman's already going to be in it, this evil system, this wickedness is going to be all there, and then at a time it's going to be taken to the land of Shiner, moved there. And I'll come in a moment just to see, well, why has it been moved there? There's a couple of reasons for that, but this is what is being presented to us here. 
I take it that whatever those two women represent has to do with with ungodliness and uncleanness. The stork is an unclean bird. And the Lord doesn't make any mistakes when he uses certain uh, imagery and metaphors to describe what he is seeking to teach us. He doesn't take a clean bird. He takes an unclean bird. He says they have wings like the wings of a stork. Those, those wings are large, certainly. And with the wind in those wings, again, the thought is of suddenness and speed at which this is going to happen. And it may well be something that's going to be done very quickly when it happens. But there's something here as well about this uh, thought of uncleanness. Even in those who facilitate and bring it about, there's going to be a spirit of uncleanness in them as an unclean bird. The stork is an unclean bird. Everything about this is represented by uncleanness and, and wickedness. And there comes a time when that woman in the ephah is going to be displayed to be the harlot of Revelation 17. Admired by all, delighted in by all, giving the cup of joy and gladness to all the nations. But little do they know it's the wine of everlasting wrath. Because that's why it's been taken to the land of Shiner, for its final judgment. That's why it's been taken to the land of Shiner. The wind is often used in the scriptures to speak of judgment. It's often used in scripture to speak of, of judgment. And we can turn up a, a few references in, in, in that regard as well. Um, probably more than we have time this evening to, to turn up. But um, we can take at least a, a one if not more of these uh, references. And, and to have that thought about the wind. About the wind. For example, Numbers 11, 31 says there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea let them fall by the camp and if you read on through there it tells us about as the flesh was between their teeth verse 33 ere it was chewed the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague and that section there numbers eleven thirty-one, starts off with reference to the wind and we could go through other portions as well in the very same vein. And we think about the wind. The wind is associated with, with judgment. So what is the Lord saying here through Zechariah as he looks and sees the ephah and it's taken up by these, these two women with wings like a stork and it's been taken, taken swiftly as it's possibly suggested there with the wind being involved. But it also is the thought of judgment. It's been taken for judgment. It's going to be transported back to its base, back to its originating point. Back to where that spirit of rebellion against God has commenced. <clears throat> and if we think about Genesis chapter 10 and the spirit of, of Babel, that was there and into chapter 11 of Genesis as well. Here's where the spirit of wickedness has, has come from. Here's why it's going back to the land of Shiner. In Genesis chapter 10 and verse 9 we read there about the mighty hunter Nimrod. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babylon. 
and Erech and Akkad and Calne and the land of Shinar. There's the land of Shinar mentioned. Surely there has to be a connection in the in the prophecy of Zechariah 5, that last verse or so, and the mention of the land of Shinar. Surely you have to go back to, to Genesis and Nimrod and consider what's happening there in the spirit. And then into chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the spirit of we'll not be told again, the spirit of lawlessness that, that was there when the Lord commanded them. Now they were to disperse. And the land of Shinar is mentioned here and again Genesis chapter 11 and verse 2. They dwelt there and they're going to, to build their, their tower that didn't physically reach heaven. That's not what it says in this portion. I know sometimes Bible storybooks, children's storybooks of this building going away up into the clouds. That's not what is mentioned here at all. That's a misreading of the scripture. They, they were looking at it as an alternative way onto God. It was a a tower of worship, of false religion. It is all the marks of departure from God and defiance of the Lord and how the Lord um, judged that day those that were involved in that and scattered them. Well, there, there's going to be a repeat of that. And that's what we, the picture that is being presented to us in Zechariah 5 here about this, this wickedness. This ephah, someday it's going to be transferred, taking back to the land of Shinar, going back to where it all started with the purpose of it being judged. And that brings us then over to Revelation chapter 18, where we want to finish uh, this evening. Because here, here is the judgment that comes upon Babylon. The ephah by now has been taken back. The woman has been revealed in all her wickedness in chapter 17. She is the harlot, the mother of harlots. And this spirit has brought Antichrist to the fore. And as we know, that, that woman that, that he rides upon, he will turn against and devour and destroy. And he will declare himself to be the object of worship. And when we get into chapter 18 of Revelation, there then is the city of Babylon restored. And that whole chapter is about commerce and merchant men and trading. Because that's the ephah. This is what it's all about. It's enlarged here and developed now in the book of the Revelation, as you would expect it to be with progressive Revelation. It was there in, in type and shadow and picture form in Zechariah. Now here it is in its fullness. And there's a whole chapter that tells us here about this city. And the trading that went on with regards to Babylon. But remember it's back in the land of Shinar for judgment. God has brought it back there to judge it. And in Revelation chapter 18. There is that cry that goes up. At the beginning of it to explain to us as the Lord often does. It's like a little summary of these chapters. And many a time the Lord does that and then begins filling in the details. He, he shows us the, the great conclusion that there is there in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 18. After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying Babylon is great, the greatest fallen is fallen. And has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. 
And all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 3. The nations have been taken in. They've been taken in with the, the, the semblance of it. The ephah. The trade. The commerce. They, they've never had any cause to be alarmed. They thought it was all for their good. And all the time they didn't know it. They were just drinking the wine of the wrath of judgment. And we're not going to go through the book of, the, of chapter 18 of the Revelation um, section by section, certainly not verse by verse, but if I can just pick out some of these verses. Verse 10, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. We have already thought about sudden judgment. God doing things suddenly. He's going to bring sudden judgment upon that city. Brought back the ephah, brought back to, to the land of Shinar, where Babylon is, established on its base, but with a purpose of judgment. That's the particular point to notice with reference to the wind in Zechariah 5. Brought back for judgment. Verse 16, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches has come to naught. Again, sudden judgment. Sudden judgment. And the cry goes up like, verse 18, the cry when they saw the smoke of our burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? But oh, alas, alas, her judgment has come. I finish with verse 20. Because here's God, the response of God's people. Rejoice over her, thou heaven. And ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Rejoice. It'll be a day of sadness, as we know, for the nations of the earth and for the merchants and the great men. It'll be a day of sadness, this city that represented all their hopes, brought down in an hour. But God's people will rejoice because Christ is coming. It's the harbinger for Christ to come as he comes and brings down that city in judgment. So if we think there about Zechariah 5, just as we close, and the fact that the prophet is told these, these things have to take place, dark and foreboding as they are, a curse, wickedness, but all necessary in order to bring about the coming of Christ as we go on into the, re- the rest of the book of Zechariah, and as you will see in future studies. So I trust the Lord will bless his word tonight. Uh, as we have thought about these things and we can take heart the Lord is coming the Lord is coming he'll bring an end to sin and wickedness and judgment let's just bow together in prayer our Father